0: As doctors in the US celebrate the successful transplant of a pig's heart into a human, doctors in Italy are delighted to have transplanted a human heart into a pig. The recipient is said to be doing well and already awake, alert, and reminiscing about his time running Benetton F1. Hello and welcome to Season, or if you prefer, Series 18 of Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, he's Alex. Hi. And he's Zog. Hello. Happy New Year. Yes, happy blooming New Year. Here's a question. How long into the New Year... Are you allowed to wish people Happy New Year before it becomes uncomfortable?
1: I think today is the last day. (laughs) Is it really? (laughs) By the time this goes out, we're well over a third of the way into the month. And after that, it just gets a bit weird. It's been like wandering around in March going, oh, Happy New Year. It's March. Leave me alone. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think that's right. You may have noticed, by the way, that I'm sounding more lispy than usual today. I've just come back from the dentist and half my face is still a bit numb. So if I have to pronounce things slowly and carefully today, please forgive me. So what have you been doing in January? Have either of you been watching any motorsport on television? I'm talking about the Dakar.
1: I will admit I have been doing, and get your bleep button ready, I've been doing the sum total of four. <laughs> January. I justified this to myself and not the fact that I have no work on. I've had a very intense two years of being freelance in a pandemic and I'm exhausted. So I'm having a rest. I have a PlayStation and I fully intend to use it. Guardians of the Galaxy is really good. Play that. Hmm. You haven't been doing any driving games? No, I've been distancing myself from... Well, plus there aren't really many good ones at the moment. Gran Turismo 7 coming out in March, which I'm looking forward to. But yes, there's not much been going on so I've been sat on my ass, been completely like an immovable object
0: of laziness it's been excellent a man of luxury yes a
1: man of luxury
0: so have you caught anything of the Dakar on TV I've been watching some of the highlights
2: I haven't been following it super closely but I've been watching highlights and I like the look
0: of that Audi. Yes. Nice bit of tech. Yeah. Audi have decided to join the Rally Raid or arguably rejoin the Rally Raid universe again with a bespoke vehicle. I, I mean, it is a car. It's more of a buggy than a car. But it's called the rsq e-tron and i think the q comes from the team who are running it on the behalf of audi who are called q motorsport but i guess it also hints at quattro Quattro, you think yeah yeah, yeah. you know audi made their name in rallying they took on the mom with new technology and now they're doing the same at rally raid and this car's extraordinary in that, it's an electric car but wait hang on it really isn't it's got three electric motors they are the motors from formula e so it's got one for the front axle one for the rear axle but these are of course mgu's motor generator units so it's got a third one which is used as a dynamo effectively to generate electricity well to provide electricity for the motors and that MGU, that third motor, is coupled to, wait for it, a two-litre FSI DTM engine, an Audi four-cylinder petrol engine.
1: <laughs> okay, so it's a range extender, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Because I'm guessing the motor, the two-litre petrol doesn't drive the wheels. Yeah, exactly. Unless they're going full Chevy Volt and Vauxhall Ampere. It doesn't drive the wheels. No, that's right. Apart from over a certain speed, then it does drive the wheels. But that's only because it's going really fast.
0: Yeah, it has no direct connection between the until combustion engine and the wheels. The engine is simply a generator. Yeah, And it runs between, I think, five and and 6,500 revs, sort of fairly consistently, to provide energy for the battery it's got a i think a 65 kilowatt hour battery on board or something like that it's in that
2: range and as you say the fact that the engine is running in a very narrow rev band is because the idea of that internal combustion engine is to run it as efficiently as possible so running it at the speed that gets absolutely the most efficiency and that combined with electric power to the wheels is what Audi engineers with a blank sheet of paper decided was their best solution to a Dakar rally in 2022. And yeah, as Alex says, it's basically a range extender turned up to 11. The other way of thinking, it though is it's like an old diesel electric locomotive, but this is the really fun, wacky version of it because it's exactly the same thing. You have electric motors driving the wheels, but the energy that is going into those motors to drive the wheels is coming from an internal combustion engine. There's a battery that's a buffer to store a lot of that energy on the way to the wheels, and so that you've got, you know, this big chunk of energy ready to dump into the motors and to keep them running, and which will deliver energy faster than, I believe, the internal combustion engine could crank out the electrons, if you like. But yeah, this is Audi's start with a black sheet of paper. What can we come up with? What's the best thing right now? And for this challenge... And in this case, yeah, it's a range extender. And it's doing
0: pretty well. Have they won the last stage? I think they've won... Two stages. Forgive me if I'm wrong. We're at about stage eight or nine today. It runs yeah. until uh, to the internet, January the fourteenth. Yeah, have a look.
2: They had a rocky start. Toyota have been making most of the running and looking very solid, and Audi were on the back foot at the start. But they've won a couple of stages, and I also like the way the car looks. It's got. This applies to I think a lot to quite a few of the other generation of Dakar rally cars. But it's kind of got the look of a crab. Mm-hmm. You know, like a slightly aggressive sci-fi robot crab crab. which is a cool look
0: yeah it's a very flat carapace i think we can call it that yeah exactly yeah
2: and the smaller headlights have the look of sort of evil pin like i'm about to clamp you with my pincers tail apart and eat you look that crabs always have in their eyes
0: it's a good look
1: according to motorsport.com a website i won't lie i hate stage eight extra wins for Audi. there you are So, stage eight, it's one. Yeah,
0: the Dakar. I remember last year when ProDrive run their BRX Hunter for the first time. I've been more interested in Dakar than I ever have been before. And again, this year with Audi coming on board with this extraordinary car, Dakar is one of the most interesting places for innovation. I can't think of an example of another motorsport series where you've got... A car that uses an internal combustion engine as a range extender and I kind of almost find it hard to believe that this is the most efficient way of doing it and I think what you said Zog about the electric motors being able to get the torque down more easily is why they're doing it so on soft surfaces it will give them an advantage. It may
1: be the most efficient way of doing it however there is not an Audi currently in the top 10.
0: Of the overall, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. as it stands at the moment while we're recording this. Toyota Pro Drive, Toyota Mini Pro Drive, BMW, Toyota Mini, Ford and Century. Not an Audi. Not a sniff of a ring. Mm. Wait, no, that's wrong. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, no. Yeah,
2: as I just I think they didn't have a great start, but uh, they're looking up a bit now, but it's the first year they've run this vehicle. Yeah. So maybe, you know, with another year of development behind them they'll be much stronger next year yeah maybe it isn't the best solution Alex but we'll see longer term why they've chosen it I believe some of the Audi engineers felt that there was an advantage to do with power delivery and to do with the drivers being able to get a little bit more out of the car without having to change gear basically with the continuous reliable torque under their right foot the drivers liked the characteristics of
0: this powertrain it makes a very interesting sound i don't know if you've heard it at all but you get that sort of whistle that has become familiar from or that almost gear whine sound that is familiar from <laughs> formula e and extremely yeah. e. but you've also on top of that got the sound of this engine going Wah! at the same time and it sounds really busy when it goes by and like you say it looks good but there are other innovations at the dakar this year as well the ProDrive BRX Hunter, which ran last year, is now running this year with synthetic fuel. They're trying to up the green credentials of the Dakar by inviting electric cars even if they're not really electric cars because they've Um, fuel tank. um, um, Don't mention it. And alternative fuels. In fact, next year, I think, and then they enter properly in two years' time, next year, a team from Germany, I think, who are called GCK, the Green Core Connection, connection with a K, are running a car called an E-Blast H2, which is a hydrogen fuel cell car. It's got a 700-bar hydrogen tank on board. It's got a fuel cell, obviously, to turn that hydrogen into electricity. And it will be a proper silent electric car. And this is great. Here we have a motorsport series where we've got petrol cars and diesel trucks and electric cars, albeit with an internal combustion engine, and a hydrogen fuel cell car all running at the same time. Not always in the same category because there are, I think, seven categories that you can race in at Dakar. The car categories are split into T1, which are sort a of prototype cross-country cars. And that itself has got a subdivision. T1e, that's the Audi electric car. T1 Plus, that's the Toyota Hilux and the BRX Hunter. And then there's T1.1, which is stuff like the BMW X5. The T1.2, which is the Mini, which is in no way a Mini. And the Peugeot 3008 DKR, which, again, is nothing like a Peugeot 3008. And the Ford Raptor. That's probably for the best. Yeah, really, yeah. And they run in T1.2. <laughs> T1. Then they have T2, which is series production cross-country cars. T3, lightweight prototype cross-country vehicles. T4, modified production cross-country side-by-side side vehicles t5 prototype and production cross-country trucks but the really interesting thing about dakar this year is that for the first time ever dakar is part of the fia world cup for cross-country now you may remember how the world sports car championship merged with Le Mans, and it sort of opened up endurance racing around the world. There have been FIA-sanctioned rally raid series, but this is a very serious attempt at turning it into a worldwide sport. I think we're at the dawn of something genuinely exciting here.
2: Well, let's see. You were talking about how Dakar was engaging you, rather more in this last year or two than it has previously. Yeah. It seems to me that part of the appeal that it has which maybe is a bit more significant right now is that it's an event that has a lot more of a sense of adventure and challenge and a real physical challenge, a real endurance challenge. Yeah. In a way that I mean even you know the 24 hours of Le Mans is a fantastic race, you know, wonderful event. But the reliability of the cars and the number of cars that are actually finishing out of the starting field in the last 10, 20 years, it's becoming a much more easy event to finish than it was 50 years ago when it really was the grand prix d'endurance yeah dakar on the other hand a it's a real massive challenge and not just the physical challenges you'd expect but because of where it's run it's sometimes they have to cancel stages and bits for all kinds of safety reasons yeah some is political they're sometimes just to do with the fact that that route that they've chosen has turned out to be actually a lot rougher on say, the motorbikes than they'd realised and they decided it's not safe to carry on, which I think they did for one of the stages this year. It's also an event which is actually relatively attainable. I mean, if the three of us decided that we wanted to enter the Dakar Rally, it's just about possible that we could do it. You know, yep. assuming we got some other people to pay for it, of course. But it's an event that serious amateur drivers can still compete in. I mean, in living memory, Mark Thatcher famously raced it in the 1980s and got lost in the desert. Who else? Paul Belmondo. Yeah. Johnny Alladay. Yeah. So that combination of the fact that amateurs can have a go and that it's still a real phenomenal challenge,
0: that gives it some real appeal, an enduring appeal. I'm not suggesting that we put a team together and go and take on the Dakar. I would love to do that, but I don't think I'd survive, quite frankly. Gareth Jones on sand. <laughs> Honestly, I'd
2: rather do the twenty-four hours of lemons. That would be my pick. Okay, I quite fancy that.
1: Alex is rolling his eyes in a way that I rarely see anyone rolling. (laughs) No, no, no. no. A friend of mine has a plan to do one. Does he? And I said I'd be his pit crew because there's no way I'm driving against those mentalists.
2: Well, keep me in the loop if you like. I might be up for that.
0: The Dakar this year—it's the, I think, the forty-fourth running. The third time in three years it's been in Saudi Arabia now. And you're right that there are huge sand stages Alex but I was genuinely shocked to see some of the coverage where they effectively are ascending a rocky mountain it was like Hadley Rill on the moon it was just stones and gravel and they were scrambling up and struggling for grip and sliding Hmm. back it is so difficult and then a number of occasions where you see cars going over the crest of a sand dune and it's a fall off on the other side of the sand dune of about four stories. And so you get cars leaping over the crest and tumbling, head over heels, tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. And then they sort of get out, they roll the car over, they fix it, and then off they go again. These people are absolute heroes. I love it. If you haven't watched the Dakar, catch the coverage on Eurosport or the highlights. It's absolutely fascinating. But there's two things in it I've Got to tell you about they have the classic section of the dakar now as well that one of the categories you can run in cars which have run at the dakar previously and there's a car that i know will make you well but i think both of you would love it we all do it's the dakar 911 the rothman's oh Oh, yeah yeah, yeah, it's not a 959 but that rothman's colored 911 that looks like it could take on anything and that's running but my Absolute favourite, even above the Audi and the Hunter BRX, is a truck that's running again this year, which DAF built. Well, a DAF driver decided to build way back in the 80s. He went to Dakar in a DAF and realised he didn't have enough power. Oh. So he got another truck and he effectively reversed it into the first truck. It was the DAF double cab, it had two engines, and the engine at the rear runs a drive shaft. To drive the front wheels and the engine at the front runs a drive shaft to run the back wheels. It is the most go anywhere vehicle you can imagine. Of course, that makes all of the sense. Why aren't all cars like that? <laughs> well, if every day we went out driving, we had to cross some of the most difficult train in the world, that would be the way to do it. I do it in a truck, not a car. You may remember a few years ago on the podcast, we did a Doctor Who sketch for one of our Christmas episodes. And in that sketch, the turdis, rather than the TARDIS, is accidentally materialized at the Eurovision Song Contest. And to illustrate this, I created the snippet of a song representing the sort of thing that was sung at Eurovision. Now. A number of years later, I have finally fleshed out that little snippet of a chorus into an entire song. Thanks to my great friend Steve Allen Jones, who helped me rework the song and rewrite it. This is Gary and Stefan Scrotum with a song about the sounds and chimes that cars make. Inspired by the voice synthesis of the Austin Maestro, you're gonna have this in your head forever now, and you'll never forgive me for it. This is Bing Bang Bong.
3: All monitored functions are working correctly. There was a time when I was lonely, lonely. but I'm not so anymore. Because you sing to me. In your sweet, sweet voice Ah. If I accidentally Open the driver's door I can say goodbye To those miserable times Now I hear your Electronic (laughs) chimes Bing bang bong, I love you Bing bang bong, you love me Bing bang bong, I love you And you love me Bing bang bong, I love you Bing bang bong, you love me Bing bang bong, I love you And you love me Bing bang bong If I don't put on my seatbelt I forget I know it's wrong You always remind me with a ringing bell A ding or a ting or a bing bang bong I can say farewell to the peace and quiet. A little bell can tell you you should try it Bing bang bong, I love you Bing bang bong, you love me. Bing bang bong, I love you when you love me. Bang bong, Bing bang bong, bon, I love you. Bing bang bong, you love me. Bing bang bong, I love you when you love me. Bing bang bong. Morning. Oh. A fault has been detected. One a day I noticed something missing. Oh, no. I couldn't hear your sweet, sweet sound. Oh, I'd gone and left my key in the ignition. Me, a battery of love was truly run flat down. Oh. I can still hear you through the mists. Of time Bing I'm yours and bong forever mine. Why, Have the alternator check. Bing bang bong I love you Bing bang bong You love me Bing bang bong I love you and you love me Bing bang bong Bing bang bong, bing, bang, bong. I love you bing bang bong You love Our me Bing bang bong, bong. I love you Bon, I love you, ping bang bone, you love me, ping bang bone, so
1: I love you when you love me. Big bang bone, ping bang bone, I love you, ping bang you love me, bang bone, I love you when you love me. You are my b- driver,
0: my owner, and b- bon b- bon. I love you. Bing bang bong Garage speed it's called Gareth Jones on Speed, which suggests that we're obsessed with fast cars, which we are. But within the parameters of the definition of this program, we kind of like things that do over 17,500 miles per hour as well. Rockets. And this year is going to be a huge year for space exploration. And space travel we will come to SpaceX's attempt to launch the Starship into orbit for the first time, which could actually possibly even happen this month, January. But there's lots of other massive stuff going on, not least of all, Zog and I'm sure you'll know about this. The James Webb Telescope.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which, of course, actually launched on Christmas Day. Yeah. I watched it launch Christmas Day. It was a fantastic, wonderful event. A lot of cosmologists and astronomers will have breathed a huge sigh of relief that it made it safely on its way. It's currently unfolding.
1: It's unfolded. It successfully unfolded yesterday. Yep. They're
0: going through the process of locking it now, aren't they, all the elements?
2: There's a
1: lot of unfolding to do. There's that
2: big sunshield, there's the main mirror, there's the secondary mirror, there are antennae. I think there are over 300 different single point of failure steps along the way. Different unfolding steps and things that have to turn on and happen before it will work at its final location. And it's going to take about six months for all of the kind of test procedures and run-up things to happen. And also for it to get cold enough to start working, because it's an infrared telescope. And to look at infrared things, you need a very cold sensor, so that you haven't got, from an infrared point of view, you're not actually sitting in the middle of a glowing telescope, a glowing structure. So yeah, so it'll take about six months before it's ready to go. But then in six months, we see the first images from James Webb and... That's going to be a new era in space astronomy. It's a big deal. It's going to be fantastic.
1: What I'd like you both to do now, and anyone listening, if you're near an internet, is just to bring up an image of the telescope unfolded. Hang on, I'll find a link. James Webb Telescope. The reason for this will become abundantly clear. So if you see an image of it with all the gold finery, yeah? I've got one here. Hold up. All right, send us a link. I've
2: edited several films with James Webb content in. I've got a few of those pictures. Right,
1: hang on. This isn't a waste of time, I promise. Just open the chat. There you are. There should be an image waiting for you now. Okay, let's have a look. Yep, that big hexagonal mirror. It is the forbidden blockbusters board. (laughs) (laughs) It is, isn't it? A long lead up to a really crap punchline. But it does look like the blockbusters board. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'll have a pee, please, Bob. Yep. My favorite, it's located at what we call a Lagrange point. There are five Lagrange points, aren't there? Right, yes, correct. But I always think that we mispronounce it, it's yeah. Lagrange Joseph Lagrange, wasn't it? Well, it's a bit
2: more complicated this because it turns out that Leonard Euler, a Swiss mathematician, discovered three of the Lagrange points, I think, about 50 years before. Lagrange did. Really? And just to quickly explain for anybody, well, for almost everybody who is not familiar with the idea of a Lagrange point, a Lagrange point is a point in space. It's a special point in an orbital system, specifically in a three body system such as the Sun, the Earth, and a space telescope. The gravitational physics, the orbital mechanics of three bodies are very, very complicated. It's very easy to work out what happens with two bodies. If you've just got the Sun and the Earth, it's very easy to work out what happens with those, gravity-wise. You add a third body in there, and their motion becomes very, very, very complicated, very hard to work out. But long story short, it turns out that there are these five points in that three-body system where the third small body, your telescope, can kind of sit, and it gets an equal pull from the rotational forces that are going on and the gravity of one body and the gravity of the other. And so there are these five special points where if you put a thing there, a satellite, a small moon, a space telescope, it could kind of sit there more or less forever without being pulled one way or another you know it might have to use little bits of thrust to keep it there but you're using little bits of thrust rather than lots of thrust yeah no it is fascinating and honestly as somebody who has a fairly good feel for math and physics i actually find it very hard to kind of visualize how these lagrange points work but they do
1: i have a question i'm not being facetious for a change i know it's a christmas no. miracle <laughs> with these five lagrange points i'm just looking at a nasa website so i can kind of see where they are with these points The telescope is in one of them. Yeah. L2. Is it a very specific point? So can only one thing be in that Lagrange point at any given time?
0: That's a good question. Things tend to gather at Lagrange points, and we've had probes at L2... Previously, haven't we? I think Spitzer so L2, maybe the Spitzer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit really. like dead water, I always think, Alex. You know, if you've got a swimming pool with two feeds of water going into it, there'll be one part of that pool where the water isn't influenced by either of those and stuff will gather. flotsam and jetsam will gather there. The swirling pools and Eddie's energy, I think that's a good way of visualising it. At a point between the Earth and the Moon, there is a Lagrange point. Now, it's very close to the moon you've got to get Uh, to a point where the gravitational pull of the moon i'm talking about the moon and the earth at the moment oh sorry yes yeah yeah, it's got to be very close to the moon because the moon has something like 1.2 percent of the mass of earth so it doesn't have the gravitational pull that the earth has if you imagine the balance point between the pull of those two bodies is going to be much closer to the moon than it is to the big old strong earth. Now, that I get, but the idea that there's an L2 point on the other side of the moon, or in this case for the James Webb telescope, it's between the big object being the sun, the small object being the earth, and there's a point beyond the earth, this is where James Webb is going to be, and it's about a million kilometres, right? something Away like Earth? that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to visualise how it works, but it does work. And you could sit there. And Alex's question about is there just one point? Can you only have one thing there? It's an area, isn't it? I think the answer will be strictly speaking. Yes, there is a single infinitesimally small. Lagrange point out there at L2, but for all practical purposes, given that the scale on which you're working is a scale of millions of miles, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of miles, if you're 2,000 miles away from that Lagrange point, you're pretty much at the Lagrange right, point, okay. so it, you're it, it's close to the... Yeah. And in fact, I think a lot of satellites or a lot of things that they put at a Lagrange point, you actually tend to put it in a little bit of an orbit around the Lagrange point rather than at the Lagrange point. Yeah, that's right. Depending on which Lagrange point you're at, it has to be an orbit that uses some propellant because I can't remember which ones they are, but at least the Lagrange points tend to be on the kind of saddles of your three-dimensional gravitational field curvature. Right. If you imagine one stable point in a gravitational field would be at the bottom of a gravitational well you know, sitting at the bottom of that pit. That's really stable, and it takes some work to get out of there. These Lagrange points are more like the top of a low mound, a low hill. You can stay at the top of that hill without expending very much energy at all. And if you kind of roll a little bit off the top of the hill,
0: it's very easy to get yourself back to the top of the hill. It's that kind of thing. The important thing about the James Webb telescope is that it's going to give us deep space images that go... Much further back in time than we've ever been able to do before with visible light space telescopes like Hubble, of course. Or in fact, such as Hubble, because there's nothing else like Hubble. And so we're going to be able to understand, hopefully, you know, more about the beginnings of the universe, which is a huge thing, and also probably be able to see. I don't know, Grand Prix from 30 years ago much more easily as well. I'm hoping that the James Webb telescope will be able to <laughs> look back at television episodes I've missed. Is that how it works? No, I don't think it is. Eh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I think we're getting James Webb confused with Brit Box, Gareth. Oh, oh <laughs> again? the second time go. today. Okay, let's talk about the big one. And I'm not talking about Ariane 6, the cheaper sequel to Ariane 5. Let's talk about Mr. Musk's big Mars bus. Zog, what do you reckon? Is it going to explode on its first attempt? No, actually, I'm going to ask Alex. Alex, do you want it to explode on its first attempt? Because you don't like Elon Musk, do you? No,
1: well, the thing is, there's a difference between wanting cool technology to exist and thinking the person that developed it is a bit of a prick. As much as Musk's attitude is genuinely awful, like the way he conducts himself on the internet, whatever, like that really doesn't sit well with me. I really hope that cool stuff exists because that is great, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's yeah. not the one actually building it, he's the one bankrolling it, so I hope the
0: cool thing works. More than bankrolling it, Alex, I think he's inspired it, it's his vision, his unfettered view of uh, a possible future. There
1: was an amazing headline there, of, like, Elon Musk is very keen to kill someone on Mars, <laughs> <laughs> or but, sorry, be, be <laughs> responsible for someone dying on Mars, which is uh, dark, but... Weirdly true. It's certainly true, and I'm going to be careful about commenting
2: on something that you're reporting. Somebody else's probably reported speech. But he has certainly said that he wants to die on Mars. So the headline you've just reported, that could be somebody's take on exactly what Elon Musk said about how he wants to die on Mars. It works that way. But maybe he does want to take his arch-nemesis out to Mars and hit him on the head with a rock somewhere in Gale Crater.
1: I'm just doing a quick Google. Why does Elon Musk want to die on Mars... Yo, and what have you found? Trip to Mars, you'll die on the way, says Elon Musk. Bunch of people will probably die during travel to Mars.
2: It's not a very cheery vision of space travel, you've got to say. It. It's not the most upbeat way of describing your pioneering space
0: adventure. But it's probably realistic. Human-tended space flight is risky and has been for a long time. And the journey there is where, you know, you're going to make mistakes early, don't you? You want to happen early before you get too far into the program. There's too much at stake. Mm. And if Starship and booster BN-4, is that the one that they're using the bottom half? The super heavy booster. If that rapidly disassembles itself on this first attempt to orbit, no real problem. And it will prevent that hopefully from happening the second, third, fourth, fifth, attempt and we're still some way away from people travelling on board Starship. Yeah, correct. But the direction that we're moving in is the correct one. If you look at what's happening at Boca Chica, which I love to say as if it's the backing track or rap track. Boca chica, Boca Chica, Boca Chica, Boca Chica Hmm. or is that a train Um, at the stuff that's going on there is on Believable? They've built a rocket factory, a rocket assembly, a rocket launch site, a rocket maintenance and relaunch site. And you have to believe that this is going to happen. You look at that huge scale. I can't remember. The last time such an enormous space project was taken on, apart from, you know, the NASA program or the Soviet program or the Chinese and their launch facilities. But this is a private launch facility and it's not just space tourism. This truly is about trying to achieve what we see in star trek a multi-planet civilization i am entirely down with that i think it'll
1: be great i think it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out i want to see it succeed i really really do Because it would be mega to have this, like, there's another little bit of Earth, it's over there. I think it would be quite nice, this might sound a bit virtue signally, so if you like weaponising the word woke, maybe turn off forever. (laughs) It would be nice to see a little bit more public excitement about maybe fixing the mess that this bit of humanity's in before we go and make a mess on another planet. Just a little bit, and I know we're getting there. But there's less fuss and less excitement about that than maybe going to ruin another planet. But I am looking forward to being able to visit another planet. Well, I probably won't be able to because by the time it's easy to have a quick hop to Mars, we'll all be
0: long dead. How cheery, sorry. (laughs) I take your point, but people always say, oh, why are we spending all this money in space when we should be spending it down on Earth? Okay, let's think about that. Every single penny spent on rocket and spacecraft development, where does that money go? Does it vanish into space? No. It's spent here on Earth. It actually helps generate revenue. And the technological leap that came from the Apollo space program led to myriad inventions and discoveries and progress in the world. You know, the whole microprocessor Mm -hmm. revolution would not have happened without the computer work at MIT to put humans on the moon
2: it would have happened somewhere else at a different time rather than America Silicon Valley when it did but yeah the United States spent a lot of money on the Apollo program and the economy benefited enormously yeah. over yeah. the next 20 years
0: and the whole planet benefited from the technology that we invented then I and mean, we have earth resources satellites we have oceanography satellites we have navigation we are monitoring mm. and therefore Being more aware of the Earth, the dawn of the Green Revolution came with that very famous picture taken from Apollo 8, which is called Earthrise, Yeah, where we saw our home from a point of view that we have never seen before and went, oh my God. That's all there is. We better start taking care of it. So leaving the planet, you know, people go to a village and the first thing they do is they climb a mountain, if they can, that's overlooking that village, not to see what's at the top of the mountain, but to stand at the top of the mountain and look back at their village and take a view of where they're from. Mm. And we are doing the same thing again now. That's my counter to what you Mm. said, Alex. But I absolutely agree. We need to look really hard at what's happening on this planet. And one of the ways to do that is to stand back from it. We did enjoy a wonderfully mild December. It was very lovely. 16 degrees ooh, at one point it's a worry not it it's
1: a worry <laughs> I have what Clarkson would call a carbon snowshoe <laughs> <laughs> but ooh bits of my brain started going a little funny over December that might be because I'm a bit tired <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> you need that break Alex you need that break
0: <laughs> yeah there is other stuff going on in space this year as well in terms of human spaceflight, there's quite a lot going on this year as well. Absolutely. We'll have, theoretically, the first flight of Orion, on um, STS, the American Space Transportation System, this huge uh, mega rocket it, that is on, somewhere between... Just say, uh, SLS, SLS, space SLS, Space Launch, Launch System. System.
2: Thank you, John. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. STS was the shuttle, wasn't it? Yeah. And the SLS is kind of like building a Saturn V using shuttle technology. It's a sort of a merging of those. It's not new technology, so we'll see how that goes. We've got the Boeing Starliner, this privately funded spacecraft, which has not been without massive problems. Hopefully that will finally make its first flight this year. They've failed with that on a number of occasions. The Chinese will complete... Changyong, the China space station, yep. this year. There is loads going on. It's a very exciting time to be alive if you're interested in rockets, which I'm assuming, if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you are as much as we are. Well,
2: and Alty, you mentioned some of the crewed missions there, some of the human spaceflight missions. There's also, as well as the SLS Artemis unmanned mission to the moon to test that Orion capsule get it and test the return aspect of the mission as well. There are going to be several other missions to the moon, all robotic missions. There are several NASA-sponsored private missions. I can't remember quite who's doing those. Astrobotic are one of them. That sounds possible. But then there's also another NASA CubeSat mission called Capstone. And then India, Russia and South Korea are also sending landers to the moon this year, all sending rovers, Then there's the European ExoMars 2022 mission, the Rosalind Franklin rover, which is a follow-up to the ExoMars orbiter that launched a couple of years ago. And this will be another rover that's, exploring the Martian surface, in this case drilling quite deep into the rock to take samples and to look for signs of previous life. And this is another step along the road to Mars' sample return mission. And also, this is a very exciting one, there's the DART mission, the double asteroid redirecting test, which is this mission that NASA is carrying out, in which they're going to send a spacecraft out to this double asteroid system, Dimorphos and Didymos, and they're going to slam into, uh, I think, I'm not sure which they're slamming into, but they're slamming into the smaller of the two rocks to see whether it can be redirected, to see how effectively that will shift its orbital trajectory, which we want to do because we really want to know how to slightly shift the trajectory of those space rocks that eventually we're going to find are on their way to us. In the long term we're going to be hit by more Big space rock, and we'd like to know how to stop them hitting us, please. And we've got to find out a way of doing it without sending Bruce Willis up there. Well, if Bruce Willis wants to go up and do his thing and save humanity, (laughs) far be it from me to stop Bruce Willis saving the world. I'm all for Bruce Willis saving the world. But yeah, if you've got a better plan, let's go with that too.
0: I mean, these are important things. They they are, yeah. And the other thing about space flight is that people always say it's very expensive. It's astronomically expensive. Forgive me if I've got this wrong, but the entire... Apollo space program cost 25 or 28 billion dollars by 1972 when it was over. People say, oh, that's absurd amounts of money. Whereas each, what was it called? The MX missile that the US military was building. Each one of those cost 70 million dollars. And America Ordered a hundred of those, I think. So (laughs) if you compare space spending to defence spending, it's like standing a bungalow next to the Empire State Building Mm -hmm. in terms of cost. We have this perception that it is far more expensive than it actually is is. And that's always been one of the drums I've banged hard. People say, oh, we're mm, throwing mm. this money away. No, we're spending it on earth and we're not spending as much of it as you think we are doing compared to defence. And the returns are far greater than you get from defence. Mm. End of lecture. So yep agreed. of lecture. Agreed. <laughs> no argument. And actually, end of the programme as well, because oh sorry boys and girls, we've run out of time. Sorry about that. I meant to talk about your bike, but OK, can we talk for two minutes about your bike? Five minutes about your bike. Tell us quickly, Zach. Oh, OK, very quickly. Yeah, no, I was going to tell you about
2: a little project that I am working on at the moment to build an electronic automatic gear shifter for my bicycle. That's not a little project, is it? It's not a little project. It's definitely doable. It's not simple. And the reason I'm doing it, OK, well, let me just explain what it is first. I'm designing and building a little box that will sit on the bike. It'll be attached firmly to the frame. It will be an Arduino-based box of tricks that will do the gear actuation work. It will do the work of a gear lever or a rotary gear shift changer, and it will change the gears on an internally geared Shimano rear hub. And this is my overthought solution to the problem of adding a rear brake to the bicycle, basically. (laughs) I will briefly explain how I got to here From there, my bicycle, it's a lightweight frame. It was originally a track bike, a single-speed track bike, and I got it because I wanted a lightweight, simple and mechanically elegant bike. I didn't want a single-speed bike, so I immediately changed the hub for a two-speed Sturmy Archer internally geared hub. I remember that. Which means that I get the benefits of the lightweight track frame and the cleanliness of the bike. There are no cables running from the front of the bike to the back. It only has a front brake so there's no cable for a rear brake. There's no gear cable running to the back. I change gear by just doing a slight back pedal on the crank and that shifts the rear hub. But a bike with only a single front brake and with a frame geometry that puts the front wheel so ridiculously close to the frame is sort of a death trap. I decided that I needed a rear brake. However, the frame does not have mounting points for any kind of rear brake hardware. Now, you could put various clamps and things on to get around that, but that would, A, be a bit inelegant. Inelegant. Yes, inelegant, slightly. And it would also mean that I'd then have to add a cable going from the back to the front, and I don't want to add a cable going from the back to the front. So what I thought I would do instead was to change the two-speed Sturmy Archer hub that I have for a rear wheel that has a three-speed... Shimano internally geared hub that also has a coaster brake so you back pedal to apply the brake. So this gives me a rear brake. Very Dutch. However because this Shimano hub needs an external shifter cable I need a way of shifting the gears. Again I do not want a cable going from the back to the front so my solution is to make an electronic gear shifter that will read the rear wheel speed and the crank speed and using those two inputs it will then have a little actuator that will pull on the gear shift cable, and it will shift between those three gears. Now, one of the bits that you'll find interesting here, Gareth, is that the actuator that I'm going to use is a servo. Is a servo as that would be used in an RC aircraft. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's one of these. I've got one right here. You could. This is great radio, of course. I'm just showing <laughs> Gareth and Alex one of the servos that I'm using.
0: Yep, yeah, that's a four and a half kilogram strength standard size servo. Oh, and I have an identical one to that actual model you're holding up in the RC car behind me on the shelf right now. <laughs> well, there you
2: go. Well, you I'm could good. also build yourself a shonky bike <laughs> gear shifter if you fancy. It. Yeah, so it's just going to be one of those servos. I'm going to have an Arduino or Arduino compatible board to drive it. And we're going to have inputs from uh, hall sensors on the rear wheel to check the rear wheel speed and therefore the bike speed and when the bike speed is wrong for the gear that you are in the logic that the system is going to use will be that when the bike is in the wrong gear and the crank is at a standstill it will change gear if the crank is moving it will not change gear because basically for an internally geared hub you want to change under less load you don't want to change gear while you're applying too much strain Through the gear train. So my way of detecting minimal strain in the gear train is to wait
0: for zero crank revolutions. I'm so confused. This has been a programme full of innovation. The uh, Audi Dakar car, the James Webb telescope, the SpaceX Starship... And your bike, you need a name for this piece of technology for your bike. Oh, I do, you're right, yeah, I hadn't looked it. Zog Shift, the ZS. ZS? The ZS gearbox, the Zog Shift gearbox. ZS? Oh, I like it, okay. There it is. Not a ZF, but a ZS. With my list, that's almost impossible to pronounce correctly, so they're said F. I'm going to figure that (laughs) into the plan. But I'm wondering, of all these technologies that we've discussed today, which one is going to be the most successful? I'm putting my money on Zog. That's a brave bet. You've been listening to Zog. Goodbye. And to Alex Coy. Bye. And to me, Gareth. Nice to have you on board. If you're enjoying Gareth Jones on Speed, spread the word, like, subscribe, and tell the world. See you for the next On Speed. Say bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. For information on how to contact the show, see
1: pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by
0: WhizBang. Gareth Jones on Speed! 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 (laughs)